0: So today we have Bruce Cahan. So Bruce Cahan is a CEO and co-founder of Urban Logic, a 501c3 nonprofit that researches and deploys innovative financial organization and technology, technology solutions that improve regional quality of life, resiliency, and disaster response. He is also a lecturer in Stanford University's Department of Management Science and Engineering, where he researches it teaches the ethics of finance and financial engineering to develop responsible and sustainable finance design principles and practices. Bruce is a trained lawyer, financier, geospatial technologist, and an Ashoka Fellow at Stanford. I first came into contact with Bruce uh, when at an event at Stanford, um, where before going into his lecture, he discussed how important it was to honor the progress made by minorities in many deep technology fields. And that that empathy—he didn't have to do that because um, he was not there to talk about that at all, uh, necessarily. But the kind of empathy that expressed, the empathy and the sincerity at which he he talked, uh, it resonated with me. And that was that was probably toward the middle of the day of that. So people were a little uh, getting a little fatigued at that point. Uh, but it, it resonated deeply with me. But he, and then he dec- he proceeded to dive into a framework using the periodic table as a like kind of a backdrop and analogy on how we can better measure impact in a way that makes financial and, and scientific sense. I love mental frameworks uh, that are measurable, observable, repeatable. Uh, and that led me to inviting him onto our podcast because I believe that his, his way of thinking, his kind of his framework, his design frameworks can be useful to many of those listening that are uh, in the military, thinking about getting out, becoming entrepreneurs. Those veterans who are already out that are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs, um, and as well as any investors that are listening, and and of course to those who are simply just intellectually curious. I think his way of thinking and his framework will be value add to to everyone. Um, you know, in the military, we know that mental frameworks plus a lot of practice and drilling uh, enables us to move quickly under chaotic situations. I mean. F- from the very beginning, when you go through boot camp and you do uniform races, right? It's just uh, just a a way of, there's just a a way of um, a lot of the things that you, you know, from at the academies, you do child calls, et cetera, right? Um, I still remember time, time, formation, wait for no one. Um, You know, a lot of those things, they they pay dividends down the line uh, in your career, what you do in the military and then outside the military. So I thought a lot of people would be interested in and what Bruce has to say. And I'm, um, you know, Bruce being, being at Stanford, we now have, we also have Mike Stepman on here, who's a Hoover fellow, uh, who Hoover everyone. Veteran fellow,
1: Hoover veteran fellow. got to protect Hoover the brand. <laughs> You're throwing
0: out Hoover fellow now. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Hoover veteran fellow also at Stanford. Um, so I'm excited to have, uh, have all, both of you folks here on, on this call. And, um, Yeah, I just wanted to kind of kick it off there. So maybe I'll go into initial background. Um, Maybe Bruce, you could just share with us, you know, kind of where you grow up, how you came up, et cetera.
2: Well, thanks for inviting me, guys. I I appreciate it. I I really appreciate that you're understanding that there's more to any of these presentations than meets the eye. Um, As you can tell, I have a neuromuscular condition that I've had since age eight grew up in Philadelphia, and they thought uh, at the time, in in the early 60s, that by the time I was 15, I'd be dead if I didn't have a lobotomy at age 11. And I didn't, at age 11, think a lobotomy would be a healthy thing and would solve the issue of the neck. And so, um, as you'll see throughout this, and as you've heard when we've been in in our uh, meetings, My head will not pop off. Don't worry, listeners. Um, It's it's permanently attached. Uh, But when I shake my head and and I disagree with you, I am a lawyer in three states, California, New York and Pennsylvania, and you'll know that I've disagreed with you. So with that out of the way, um, I grew up um, wondering when you don't die at the time that they predict you should have died. You must be here to do something important or or it it wouldn't make any sense. And so I grew up with a healthy, perhaps naive uh, narcissism that I can do things that people normally wouldn't want to do or think to do. And in my case, because of the neurology, I have to predict where my left side is so I don't knock Sherman down passing in the hall. And that predictive ability became kind of embedded in my way of operating through the day. And as a lawyer, I had to predict what could go right and what could go wrong with a deal. As a banker, um, merchant banker, what could be be, uh, positive and negative? As a geospatial technology uh, finance pioneer for the federal government and a 9-11 responder, what would be the layers of data to analyze the safety and soundness of a, of a region as it recovers. And then, so, so this predictive ability kind of became part of me and a futuristic way of thinking to plan my day just to plan anything. And now I have a dialogue, as you know, Sherman, with, uh, with the Air Force and Space Force about what we're going to need so it, it's kind of this organic uh, gee whiz, I didn't intend to, but it kind of happened that I that I would do use that skill that I use every day in, in these other ways.
0: I love it. You, uh, you had to live your life based off frameworks, I guess, from like predicting where you would be uh, because of a physical disability from the age of eight. Uh, and that kind of manifested itself into some of the, the incredible things that you created today. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty fascinating
2: Humans well, and, and knowing, knowing how to organize the world to be, to make sense to me. Um, you know, as, as I've gotten into it and as you heard in talking about a group that I've acronymed as the Biders black, Hispanic, indigenous, disabled and underrepresented entrepreneurs. Um, When you don't fit the mainstream definition Mm -hmm. and you're already marginalized because of that and people look at you differently, uh, in a sense, and I I don't know if if this is an adult audience and I can use cursive the way way that I would like to from my Philadelphia upbringing, but um, you don't give an F. You really don't care. You're already marginalized so take the risk of inventing something or making a a logical set of steps like lego pieces that would make sense to navigate the world as it could be for for inclusion and for your own diversity to be a superpower you know i consider my kind of forecasting sense or my futuristic sense to be a superpower i didn't intend to do it i mean it's not something I studied to do, it just happened, right? And and so yeah. when I've researched, and, and you heard me present a little bit of it, and yes, it was off topic to the Stanford Digital Cities Conference where I was presenting the periodic table of quality of life for the first time on campus. Um, I, I am fascinated by the the missing history of biter, innovators, entrepreneurs, inventors that just were not in our history books. And next week I'll be in Philadelphia uh, at Germantown Academy, which is the oldest private high school in America, outside of Philly, where um, George Washington quartered his troops. And it wasn't in our history books to study folks such as I showed you, like Elijah McCoy, um, or Gladys West, or or many, many others, and, and their stories of whether they, they uh, uh, transitioned from slavery or, or whatever challenges they had, their stories are pretty empowering. And I came to realize um, that if the Biters' stories had been included in our history books, we would have had to have made, as a society, room for those people. And in the economy, we would have had to have made... But they invented Wi-Fi, GPS, car TV. I could go on and on and on. We wouldn't have enough enough time to have any other conversation. It's amazing to me. It's... it's, I'm dumbfounded. And as you know, at Stanford, we teach entrepreneurship. I mean, we're in Silicon Valley. Well, um, so I've made it a point to to amplify, let us say, and to recall these hidden hidden figure stories because they really are are bold and uh, it's part of something else that, that I can talk about if, if you want.
1: I got two quick comments about that. For First of all, Bruce, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's ironic because I'm actually reading a book right now called Entrepreneurship and Self-Help Among Black Americans, A Reconsideration of Race and Economics by John Sibley Butler, who's a professor at the uh, University of Texas. And what mm-hmm. it does is it sheds light on the African-American entrepreneur experience that is often overlooked. I have a list right here from the book that has African-American inventors from 1860, from 1900. And you you have Sarah Boone who invented the ironing board, you know, uh, CB Brooks who invented the street sweepers, like all these inventions that we never find out about But I had to go read this book, and so it's ironic that, you know, you're talking about this right as I'm going through it. And one of my things I'm working on is submitting a piece for the Hoover Digest on entrepreneurship as a form of poverty alleviation in our inner cities. And I'm doing a lot of research going back to see how have people been innovative, particularly African-Americans, you know, from slavery. Right. We didn't have much. So as dire as some of these situations seem now for minority entrepreneurs, when you look at history, we had a lot worse back then. So what are some of the principles and things people apply to be innovative? So that's one thing. And the second thing, I'm a newly, I don't, I don't want to call myself a futurist, but I'm changing the way I'm thinking and getting a better understanding that people actually have the ability to manifest the future and create it. And so I say that to say we have all these issues where, like you said, Uh, African-American inventors are not getting credibility for their work. You know, we already know that African-Americans and people of color in general receive, was it less than 1% of venture capital? But that doesn't mean it has to be that way in the future. But we have to make the conscious decision to create a different future in this innovation economy. And so do you feel like people are deliberately not willing to create that space where it's there is an inclusive economy? Um, I know that's
2: so, a broad so, question. No, no, no. Uh, hey, um, y- we are definitely getting together for a cup of coffee on campus when you're there. <laughs> um, that's that's for sure. Um, so this past spring, I, I uh, with my co-instructors, we tweaked uh, a, a class that I teach uh, and co-created called Redesigning Finance. We used to say Redesigning Post-Disaster Finance to... Deal with the wildfires and some of the other stuff that, that happens um, in, around the country, around the world. But we, we now um, teach redesigning finance for diversity. And we brought a group of um, black, Hispanic, indigenous, disabled, underrepresented entrepreneurs who are part of a cohort of a prototype um, effort at Apple, uh, sponsored by my nonprofit Urban Logic into class along with Silicon Valley bank bankers and a uh, line of business LOB um, folk from, let's say, Beats and music and marketing, etc., at Apple. And what what is fascinating, Mike, is um, the gap in history isn't just about biters or people of color being denied the knowledge that they're not the first of their kind to succeed. It's about everybody being denied the knowledge that they're not the first to succeed. And when investors or bankers or you know mainstream customers like Apple don't really in their bones know that the greatest inventions or some of the most useful inventions that actually went to scale came from that cohort of society that, you know, could say basically you've ignored us. So if we fail, nobody will notice. Um, so if we succeed, somebody should notice. Um, often there was a lack of literacy about uh, intellectual property, etc. So they didn't hold on to the intergenerational. wealth. I mean, there's all of this to to talk about, but suffice it to say, It's not just the confidence or I I went into the history because I wanted to combat the imposter syndrome that people of color and other founders just naturally feel by saying there's a history here we've all been denied. And if you knew that history, you wouldn't think you're an imposter trying to to have your entrepreneurial uh, dream. And this is a societal problem because it means uh, that we can't tap into all the innovation that the society could achieve. And I brought this actually last week. uh, There was a crystal ball workshop at Purdue sponsored by AFRL, Air Force Research Lab and Space Force. And and so there were hundreds of us there. And and I brought this as a potential, uh, let's say, antidote to the need in the space economy for domestic workforce because of national security issues, obviously with space. If you've excluded biters, black, Hispanic, indigenous, disabled folk, then of course you're not gonna fill 10,000 STEM and other jobs for space. But if you included them, look at all you could achieve. So so it's it's a mindset that's more universal, Mike. I mean, I know it must, well, as a disabled or a partially disabled person, you know, I feel those issues in in sympathy with others. Um, but it's not just about knowing that Thomas Edison was virtually deaf and invented ways to capture sound and light and movies because he had to <laughs> if he wanted to to enjoy them he could barely hear uh, by putting his teeth on a, on a um on a piano um suffice it to say that that there are many folks who've been marginalized who see what the existing system doesn't offer them clearer than the people who are benefited by the system that offers it to them does that make sense
1: it does. And I want to go back to my other question about we can create a reimagined future, but people have to have buy-in to do it, particularly people with the power and the infrastructure to do so. But do you think people have a fear of what that new future will look like in a more inclusive environment and that they're just more interested in protecting the status quo?
2: I don't know. I don't know. I it, You know, when I... And we can get into the quality of life uh, stuff, but... um I don't think it's as delivered as all that. Mostly, I don't think. I think it's just muscle memory of I don't know, you know, quote unquote. I wouldn't know, but for the research I've done, of all the inventors that you just listed, or I could just list, right? So if you if you aren't aware of success in its many many forms, you would say, well. Um, are responsible for OPM, investing other people's money. And so I have to be cautious and I'll only invest in the folks in my network that I know who can produce that result. So I don't, I don't know that's deliberate. I don't, that excuse doesn't wash in terms of, of denying access to capital. Access to capital is something that I'm certainly working on for this whole group.
1: I was just going to say, the reason I bring it up again, I'm a new futurist guy. So now I literally believe that people can create new futures for ourselves. And so then you wonder, why haven't we? You know. Well,
2: well, well let, I, let me pursue that a second. Okay, as a Jewish person, you know, Jews have been persecuted pretty a long time. I'm not going to compare one tribe's grievances or, or, or challenges to another. That wouldn't be fair. Um, but as you can see with the the rise of anti-semitism recently and forever, the the Jews have developed as a diaspora people, ways of coping with capital access and opportunity access that are different. And they are shareware. There's nothing, there's no IP around this there. There's uh, lots of precedent for things like a, a Jewish free loan society to get people on their feet. Um uh, at no interest. and and so, I don't want to compare one group to another in in an, in an unhelpful or disrespectful way, but I, but I do say that there's self-help that can be done that hasn't been. and And we should share those um, traditions and those, honestly, some of the traditions come from the Abrahamic. Um, faiths and we are both a people of faith and so how does how does that common set of traditions empower moving capital in a more effective or, or dignified way than it has been relying on major banks to do it isn't going to work mm-hmm. right you yeah. need something else
0: you know I, I want to say with respect to deliberateness It's something I've I've thought about a lot is it's not, I I think I I lean a little bit towards where you're coming from, Bruce, uh, with respect to, I don't think it's necessarily deliberate. I think it's the system is set up in a certain way, whether you're black, white, non-disabled or disabled, indigenous, whatever, have the Hispanic, the system is, if if the system is set up a certain way, you can be a white majority male. You the system is set up for you not to be able to help change not to be able to change it that, that that's why the system works. that's the system working so i i've had i've had people who've come to me and say hey i want to employ more minorities i want to do xyz i'm finding it difficult and they're white and i'm like that the system is set up to make it even difficult for them right right um a lot of the top of the funnel problem that people talk about a lot of time finding the talent et etc cetera, et cetera, right and so um you know i i think that both i think no matter who you are, even if you mean well, that is an issue with the system. The system the system, causes a problem. With that being said, I do agree with you, Mike, completely that we can manifest these futures. We, we can do these things yeah. and folks have to overcome. And you, you made, make a beautiful point, Bruce, where people that were marginalized or, or had issues in the past f- somehow find a way, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing where um you basically take these we, we take these issues against us um these, these disabilities etc and we make we turn them into superpowers
1: right
2: i think um, we do i think yeah yeah and,
0: and, and i but but we have to be able we have to tell the story so that because i think it's really tough to be something without being able to see it and you know by a podcast like this where you're sharing your story and and mike you're, you're writing a book on black veteran entrepreneurs you know getting those stories out there is wildly important, and that's, that's, this podcast is a part of that, uh, so that people can understand it. there are these people that had these issues in the past, just came out of slavery, or dealing in the time of Jim Crow, etc. Uh Hell, even now, with issues that the people are facing now, I'm dealing with the system, quote unquote, and they find a way to overcome so that the next generation can know, hey, you can do this, you can manifest this future, right? You can, you know, there there's a place for you there's Afro Bruce, Afrofuturism has been a thing, uh um, well it's been a, it's been around for quite some time, but it's been kind of more popular lexicon probably in the last like three or four years, um mm-hmm. in the African American community. And it, and it's funny because like they, they mention a lot of sci-fi movies, and said, you wouldn't see any black characters, right? Um <laughs> and it's like Wait, what do black movies does not exist I in the mean, movies? if
2: <laughs> I get to be in Wakanda, I'm there, man. Yeah. Exactly. Bring me to exactly. Wakanda, I'll yeah. be totally normal (laughs) and and i'll have superpowers beyond what i i could have dreamed yeah
0: yeah but i mean like it's a it's a beautiful thing just to be able to to be able to dream and i think that what you're talking about bruce and the the beginning part of your lecture that i saw at stanford was important because it was like man you know as a kid i was taught some of those things right um by my mother i wasn't really taught i was taught a little bit in school but i was mainly taught by my mother. and I, I, I just think it's so important what you articulated because the future generation will be able to see things. They will be able to be. It's a privilege to be a futurist, right? That means you're not worried about Maslow's hierarchy. You're trying. To, you're worried about the highest order, which is self manifestation, right? Or self actualization. I'm sorry. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to put that. out Well, there.
2: it's it's also a way, you know, especially if you if you think about space, um, um, outer space, uh, you are weightless in the future in a, in a time travel sense because you're not there's no gravity pulling you to today yes you have to get from today to there but there's no real gravity mentally or uh, uh holding you back and um and i think you can engage there's an intersectional dialogue across the different you know whether it's gender or race or, or or age that intersectional dialogue is pretty powerful um i mean of all things i've met the pope i'm a jewish person and um i have a dialogue with one of the cardinals and some others about uh the ethical finance issues that it it might you know you might want to have the various religions uh, step up to to deal with there are common frames of reference in all of this and we can use those and we can share lessons and perspectives from that i didn't
1: realize uh i didn't realize afrofuturism was a thing but i'm going to share something that i'm dealing with right now which is it's a catch-22 right because part of you has to look at the past to learn lessons learned from the past right but you can't stare too long at the past because there's also a lot of opportunity in the future. That's what made me become a futurist is thinking about new market opportunities. You know, Mm -hmm. like you said, in space, there's going to be a whole industry, of digital marketing for space technology. There's, there's all this opportunity in the future and we're stuck here in the past fighting over breadcrumbs in existing markets. When, what happened if we focused that attention on these new emerging markets?
2: And, and, we have we can walk in true government at the same time we we yeah. need to take care of alleviating poverty today and not just focusing on space but it may turn out that part of poverty comes from medical debt and medical debt might be alleviated by by options that are developed for space medicine i don't know
0: but- yeah i you mentioned bruce um a couple of minutes ago. intersectionalism and i want to i want to touch briefly so people, uh, for, for the audience, Bruce um, with the pen, and he also did law school at Temple in Philly. So he's, he's Philly to and through. And then you went to, uh, you were a lawyer in New York.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, that, that started some time ago before September 11th. But I want to I just speed up to your, your 9-11 experience and your post-9-11 work, where it was kind of intersectional. After that, you were, you were, you felt that disaster like no other, right? You were Trump. I mean, whether you know it or not, you everybody probably, you did. have you have some everybody. PTSD. You have sure PTSD did. from that from that disaster. Yep. Because you were there, and yep. you then started looking at the combination of finance and law and urban planning and climate um, in order to come up with post disaster finance. Now you now you call it just you know future finance, effectively, right? But can you just can you touch on that? Um,
2: yeah, your, experience,
0: um, your raw experience, actually, just your lived experience at 9-11 and post-9-11, and then how you kind of came up with that framework.
2: Well, it, it actually started about years earlier. Con Edison had exploded a steam pipe in Gramercy Park, where I lived, in New York, which is at 20th Street and 3rd Avenue. Sprayed 220 pounds of asbestos wrapping and killed three people in my building. Including a young mom and a cabbie waiting for a fare at the at the door, and I thought this is crazy. Um, I, I was in my met, uh, merchant banking career at that point. New York City streets shouldn't explode, except in Ghostbuster movies, and um, even then. And and why was this happening? It seemed every year in August, and what was it about? a Con-Ed work crew repressurizing a 135-year-old, very fragile steam pipe at the doorstep of my co-op, and a a water crew for the city two blocks away letting the water drain around this pipe when it was so fragile. Why didn't they know that they were so close from a a risk point of view? It turned out that they were using two different maps, neither of which showed the other's infrastructure. And so this was 1989. I spent the early 90s organizing with, a, with the co founder, David Coons, uh, Urban Logic as a nonprofit to push the city and eventually threaten the city that they had to map themselves from bedrock to the top of the trade tower. And there are lots of stories that I could go on. Suffice it to say that I convinced them that they could use $100 million of the capital budget to pay for that, a map that was delivered six months before 9-11. And that came to the attention of the federal government and had me work for the Federal Geographic Data Committee on financing the national spatial data infrastructure. So the intersectionality lesson came from Gramercy Park. Fast forward to nine eleven, the map that um, I had uh, helped to, to convince the city to fund was delivered, but only Hunter College had it, had, had a beta version of it. And so after making sure my twin sons who were nine were, were safe, I went to the police academy, which was diagonally across from 20th and 3rd. So there's a big kind of, out there. Um, and and I spent the next few months at the command center on Pier 92 for the city, make, using my federal mapping contacts. So my map book brought the first photogrammetry of Ground Zero into the command center that I had arranged. And it's the first time you all may have the experience. I had never gone into a military computer and there are all these like warning uh, windows that come up. So I had to click through those and download the thing. But um, I saw as a result of the command center experience, excuse me, that everybody who had a badge to be there was incredibly part of the solution. But you also in those times had implicit authority because of that badge uh, to do the right thing. Whereas mostly in New York, uh, let us say the government and even New Yorkers in, in general do not make it their business to make it easy for you to make something change. They think that that's part of an intellectual uh, exercise of, of obstruction. And so um, it, was fa- it was a magical time. It was a horrible time. It was a magical time in the sense of, Making change happen rapidly and knowing that each person would have um, a piece of the answer that you needed to, to build the city back um, and, and make it safer.
0: That's awesome. I did wanna, I wanna move into um, your concept. That's a perfect segue into your concept of post disaster finance. Now, we don't have your slides. But I, I would love for you to best to, the ability to kind of just describe. And I know you've since reframed from post disaster finance to some other terminology that's more comprehensive. But I love for you to frame that because um, we—I don't know if you were able to uh, look at uh, the sustainability technology paper that we at AI Inventors wrote.
2: Today. Yeah, I saw. As a matter of fact, I, I did. Speaking, I
0: speaking of Stanford, the kid, the, the guy who uh, really put the pen to paper is a first-year. Uh, GSB student, uh, at, at Stanford right now, oh, okay. and, and he's actually a Naval Academy grad and a submarine, a former submarine officer. Um, and, you know, I, I, w- I would, love for you to talk about kind of, you know, you know post disaster finance or, or whatever the terminology is as it relates to sustainability tech, uh, climate, as it relates to disasters, we have the war in Ukraine right now, we have, we're coming out of COVID. Um, you know, I'd love to, for you to kind of give the audience.
2: Look, it's a big topic, sure. Um, there's, um, for all the right reasons, a lot of attention on climate change, a lot of attention on sustainability as as a generic term. Um, some would look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and say, we got it solved. Bruce, no worries, we're we're on track. For me, as the son of an accountant from Philadelphia and, and somebody who did go to Wharton and teaches at Stanford, it's not enough to have nice Crayola crayon colors for the SDGs and think that those are going to self-execute as decision variables. In my study of Fiji and Indonesia for for another project, um, I'm seeing that countries are making commitments to SDG values like alleviating poverty or women's rights or whatever, but they're not funding them. They're not dedicating their budget to it. So it's It's a phantasm, the SDGs. That being said, as someone who's spent, uh, I I was a municipal and corporate finance lawyer, so I can kind of read financial statements of governments. Governments every year have to publish um, what's called, in the States, it's called a CAFR, Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, CAFR. And, and that's the sum total of how they've been spending money based on the authorizations from the legislature. What if we took the CAFERS and the budget detail underneath it and built a periodic table of quality of life elements or QOLs, and we said, okay, New York City spends money on healthcare, Spends money on environment, spends money on crime prevention, spent on and on and on, and they do that for the last ten years and and for eternity, based on a set of, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, KPIs, uh, key performance indicators that say if you don't spend that money, somebody's going to get sick, somebody's going to be hurt, somebody isn't going to get the educational attainment that they need. So those KPIs and the money that is justified through legislation based on KPIs provide, from an economic point of view, a production function for how likely it is that people are going to be healthier in 10 years than they were today how how much safer is New York City going to be 10 years. And so when you when you think about the programs that hire the private sector to do what it does for government, you can now benchmark both the the output of an individual program. Let's say it's it's focused on health, but the overall um, portfolio of quality of life elements in the table get you to a credit rating that i call sustainable resiliency which is trademarked and sustainable resiliency asks the question how likely is it across everybody's pet quality of life concern which it's fine everybody doesn't have to agree on 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 the same mix Um, how likely is it that across the entire table there's going to be a 10 percent improvement in each of the quality of life elements, because there's an intersectionality, coming back to the prior discussion, where I just need, and you see the spice rack in back of me, I just need a little bit of, let's say, cumin from my grandmother or curry to make the soup perfect, along with some lemon. And so if you if you have a little bit of education a little bit extra education, where people learn to wash their hands and maybe study how to how to read financial statements. We might have more economic development in pockets of neighborhoods that don't normally see that. So I, the cost of the percent improvement in the quality of life for one QOL hinges on a dynamic of clusters for which it is uh, either uh, dependent or, or, or uh, the outcome. And so I, I think we, we're not using, this is a different math, sure. <clears throat> this is a different form of political advocacy. Mike, that, that I'd like, frankly, the most vulnerable in the society to have the common language of this to say, I don't care who's the politician. I care that in ten years, the quality of life elements have improved across the entire table. This scales to um, any geography. where actually I'm looking at, at Fiji and Indonesia on a national scale uh, and improving the slums there. But that's just a, a, you know a, an easy, well, a, a relatively uh, you know non-controversial. Uh, Application of
0: it. Uh, uh, sorry, Mike.
1: I was going to say so it sounds like for policymakers, it lets them think through kind of like what's the highest leveraged um, focus areas to create positive change in these communities 10 years down the line. And then for individuals, does it let them in the same, like, hey, if I make an improvement here, I can drastically increase my quality of life? down the line.
2: A- exactly, Mike. And it's not one of these situations where, you know, borrowing from the Harry uh, from um, The Hobbit, we need to have one ring to rule them all. Bruce, why do you care about the uh, poverty alleviation when we're all going to be dead by 2050 if we don't solve uh, climate change? Fine, you care about climate change. I care about poverty alleviation. We can coexist within this framework to say, you're going to be the steward for, uh, steward the value for um, climate change mitigation. I'll steward it for poverty alleviation. But the the table is is there as an objective reality, financial reality. And ultimately, we can issue bonds, sustainable resiliency bonds, to make the the investment in things that actually magnify uh, the... uh, what I've called the FVARs, the functional value at risk relationships that one QOL, if it improved by 12%, might make it cheaper to improve others
0: 10%. But let me ask you a question. How do you how do you execute the math on this and not have it be a three-body problem? Um, and, and for people listening to three bodies, it's like you have three different objects, gravitational forces, is hard to, with, with each... Only influenced by each other's gravitational forces, it's hard to assess the the, the, the movements. Right? Uh, it's actually impossible. That's the point of the three-body problem. So, um, how do you how do you do this? Because society often assigns value to certain careers. Investment bankers and hedge fund managers make a certain amount of money. Conversely, teachers make a certain amount of money, which, which seems counterintuitive because teachers are so are probably more important to society than is a hedge fund manager and or an investment banker right um so so it, 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 the math is kind of off so how do you if I'm interested in you're interested I'm interested in climate and you're interested in marginalized communities how do we work together in some common framework where because values are likely going to be assigned differently right and certainly certain
2: so things are It's a great question. I don't have a perfect answer, but I think part of it is a dialogue about how the marginalized community, in take the example I'm working with of slums, if if we are um, going through an era where more than half of humanity will live in or very close to cities, so urbanization, Mm -hmm. then you're going to get an uptick in how much uh, slum uh, occupants you're, you're going to have. If the slums increase and present uh, pathogen or other risks to the central business district, that's not cool. We've just lived through, we're living through COVID as you said. Um, so, So what is the relationship between, and this is part of something, I I couldn't find a gem, a general economic model for how a slum's economy works, to be able to pay people who live in a slum to mitigate how they handle trash and other issues, so I invented a gem for that purpose, which includes the periodic table and some other stuff. if we if we then see that we're all in this lifeboat together and that the cost to mitigate the the bad impacts of the slum, let us say, uh, for themselves and for people living in the central city are, are this much but could be reduced by 30 to 50 percent by the people in the slum being rewarded for taking, you know, proactive measures. Um, That's a financial argument that the bondholders for the city would understand. Mm, mm, mm. That's a financial argument that the mayor could get reelected on.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's 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 I want to be first principles. I hate to use an analogy here, which is not first principles, but it's kind of like carbon credits. You're creating a financial instrument to reflect where we kind of want society to go. Through these, through these bonds. Well, and, um, and
2: most importantly, Sherm, it's the math that justifies that instrument being seen as a der- the derivatives that are being being monetized through that being actual good math and not funding money. Um, yeah. And not greenwashing.
0: Yes. And I, 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 I want to say for a second for the audience, we have a, you know, the audience is directed towards uh, entrepreneurs in general, and particularly veteran entrepreneurs, and even, even further slant towards minority veteran entrepreneurs, you know, this is, I, I made a decision at some point in my career to, to move into investing that is more impactful. Um, and I think that the hope is that, look, I mean, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting anyone. But I believe that the hope is that, you know, other folks who are listening will move into things that are a bit more impactful. Um, and what, what Bruce is, is talking about now, and Bruce, we got to get a link to your papers, et cetera, is through him. You know, if you're Wait, should I have brought
2: a test to the podcast? No, no, no. no. Holy mackerel. I <laughs> no, didn't know no, that. But,
0: but, but like, it's, it's good for the, the entrepreneurs that are listening, those veteran entrepreneurs, is that you can use a framework like Bruce's or, and create your own derivative of that framework, your own thing in order to do something that's what we call a double bottom line, which is profit with a purpose, which is which is awesome and fascinating. It's, it's wildly fulfilling, right? I think a lot of veterans have issues where they get out of the military, they're doing a job and they don't feel that same sense of purpose in, in that job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've even met entrepreneurs that feel that same way. Like I'm building something, it's, it's, it's getting success, but I don't know, like, you know, people who have started social media companies, their next company is a biotech company, you know? Um, because they're, 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 humans want to make that difference, right? We want to we be helpful. I think that's um, true.
2: And, and, yeah. and you know, I, I've not been in the military for the reasons that you could imagine, but I have been privileged to, to know and, and support um, both enlisted and three-letter um, military folk. And, um, and these are people of purpose. And of, of, of gravitas, um, we need to be able to count on people who want to pursue a legitimate purpose to improve quality of life. But the math of doing it, just like your example of the teacher, the math isn't, isn't yet the common math that we use, right? If somebody is pursuing a worthwhile endeavor, giving them credit, including financial credit, Social credit, yes, uh, we, we haven't figured that out. The periodic table and some of the other stuff we've been talking about allows someone to come forward and say, but I know how to improve health in this population or in this, um, uh, in, in this territory. Um, we shouldn't make finding a solution and being rewarded for creating it so hard. I'm also aware that the government with its prime contractors and the rest um, uh, Sometimes can create a culture where a good idea is is available to be stolen That's not healthy for our system. That may be other countries' systems You have to reward individual ingenuity and, and keep the name with it because as somebody who's had his work attempted to be ripped off, it's not fun. It's really not fun. And and it's demeaning. So so we have to dignify people to give them credit for, for, for stepping out of uh, the mainstream and, and wanting to make change, good change happen. And, and, and mine, the vets are, are trained to do that. You know?
0: Yeah, and, and at least one question on Mike, because Mike, you just wrote the book on black veteran entrepreneurship. How do you react to that with respect to getting vets who are entrepreneurs to build something, to consider building something that's impactful and not just about making money? How, I mean, not to put you on the spot, Mike, but how how do you react to that that thought process?
1: So I guess one of the arguments, the thesis that I had in the book was actually that ninety nine. and this is not backed up by like peer review, whatever. But whenever I come yeah. across black veteran entrepreneurs, ninety nine percent of them are trying to start something to support the community in some way, whether directly or indirectly. Yeah. And I think it comes from people's environment. You know, I think for a lot of us, like I live in Newark, New Jersey, Bruce. so i I know how it is in Philly. I'm here in Newark. <laughs> I cannot live with myself.
2: Wait a minute. So, yeah. you're not that far from Atlantic City, which is not that far from the White House sub shop. And that's what I can't get here in Palo Alto. But Correct.
1: And so, um, you know, when you live in an environment like Newark, I cannot walk around my city and not feel like I have to do something, anything, yeah. Yeah. right? You feel this sense of responsibility. But I sure. think when you're removed from certain environments, you know, we talk about the Naval Academy is beautiful. I could live in annapolis out the rest of my days you know sipping my ties and just bloody mary's (laughs) just having a ball working out and living life but that's a bubble the real world majority of people don't live like that so i think it's having exposure to the reality of how majority of people in our society live and i Mm -hmm. think that's going to fuel people's entrepreneurial um journey i think we are really a product of our environment i think like just like you talked about bruce your upbringing the things that you experience, you're bringing this into your own entrepreneurial realm. You're bringing this into your research. So I think we, again, you know, immersing ourselves in these environments so we can be innovative and come up with problems to help solve some of these issues.
2: Well, and and I also want to be realistic. Not everybody should want to or can afford to put themselves on an entrepreneurial journey. I mean, we are different personality types. Yes, we each have our our backgrounds, etc. But it's just innate that not everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. That being said, an entrepreneur is knowing as good as his or her team. And they need to find people they trust. People who, who share the vision. People who are going to stay the course. People who are going to get paid and not go broke trying to fulfill a dream yeah. so so I mean just Mike I and I know you all you, you see this in the military the military um, does have a propensity to hire a certain few types of personalities but it's going to have to diversify even that in order to be as intersectional as the solution finding will necessitates yeah. so I, I don't want to You know get too too hyped on on the entrepreneurship uh uh, wagon without recognizing it's not for everybody and it shouldn't have to be for everybody and it and there are other ways to take your purpose and and apply them
1: 100 percent. it's hard we we, we had a yeah we had a
0: fascinating podcast remember a couple podcasts ago mike the gentleman who sold his company to amazon and he literally went through a diatribe like if, if X, if you feel some type of way, then you are not an entrepreneur. If you're not willing to do certain things, you are not an entrepreneur. So you really need to think and look in the mirror. Is that the path you want to go down, right? Um,
2: so but I don't want it's, to, it's not the only, it, it is a form of celebrity culture, certainly now with yeah. Musk and, and others and, and, and Jay-Z, et cetera. But it's not for everybody. And it shouldn't have to be for everybody to make a yeah. contribution that they're proud of. Yeah.
0: And, I, and, and for everyone, Jay-Z said he did try to go get a record deal from a regular company. He just couldn't get one. And Elon was like, I didn't want to create SpaceX. I wanted to just kind of lie to find out in NASA. I was like, why is NASA not doing this? Right. Um, and he was like, OK, I, I guess I have to do it myself because he was like, I don't think I should be the one pursuing this necessarily. Um right. But if no one else is going to do it, then he felt that burning desire to, to do that. So now Bruce, I want to go into something I love to talk about, which is space. Uh, other, than healthcare, spaces, <laughs> other than healthcare and life sciences, space is one of my favorite topics. And I want to just briefly touch on the Space Commodities Exchange. And can you just explain to the audience like, what you're doing there and kind of what, what, your, what, what your efforts are?
2: Sure. Um, so Stanford is a crazy place. I call it the the biggest adult sandbox ever invented. So everybody is there. And I was teaching a class uh, in civil and environmental engineering called sustainable banking. And back in 2010 or so, um, a PhD was researching building with regolith or, or moon dust. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you're going to have to have bricks. You're going to have to have you know radiation protection, etc. And he took the class, and he came up to me, and he's about six foot five, and I'm about six foot. And he says, uh, professor, no, I'm not a professor, I'm, an, I'm a lecturer. Um, what are you doing to help me bank in space? Now, it's 2010. It's two years after the financial crisis. I look up at him. I'm not used to looking at to people. And, and, like, why is this my problem? I got to fix the banks down here. Why do I have to go to space to find banks to deal with? I mean, this is crazy. Of course, um, I listened to this, the question, and I I read authored and and he he uh, worked on uh, the first of many papers looking at how are we going to want to and have to bank in space, and that came up with a. Uh, an acronym that was a little awkward, uh, uh, USC, a unit of space convenience, that there are things you can do from space that are cheaper and less risky than were you to try to do it, such as overflight uh, from from uh, terrestrially. And then I realized, well, how do I, as a banker for space, a space company that wants to build an asset, how do I know how much supply and demand for that? assets uh output there's going to be i mean where where do i see the supply and demand curves terrestrially i can look at a commodities exchange how much wheat does kellogg's have to buy how fast can we eat cereal uh how much oil should you pump out of the ground how much of other other things but for space we don't have that so i realized we're going to need a commodities exchange and i framed that back in 2018, proposed it to the government. There've been a couple of uh, folks who've tried to rip off the idea, but but that's what I've been dealing with. Um, I've um, presented this part of it in terms of there'll be five buckets of commodities, raw materials. So rock on the moon that contains ice is valuable because you can make not only hydrogen and, and water and oxygen, but um, that can support the energy needs partially for getting off the moon. Um, uh, processed goods from those raw materials, services of which we have a whole bunch. Uh, we have launch and we have bandwidth and we have um, navigation, PNT it's called, position, navigation, timing, uh, imagery, um, Fourth bucket are derivatives of the first three. So, Sherman, you you think that the Falcon Nine rocket launch is going to happen? I say it won't happen. Um, one of us is right. We can enter into a swap agreement, which which then extends the the uh, insurability of space activity for for all kinds of reasons. And then the fifth are in- indexes. Assume that you're four hundred one k because of your futuristic leanings you want to invest in the cislunar economy uh, all the commodities that would be used for for growing commerce on the moon Um, you could have that index so those are the five buckets and and what it does in many other ways is create an opportunity for the technologists have some certainty not only of the supply and demand for what they're going to do but this the interoperability or the standards by which what they're building relates to what other people are going to need as part of their space portfolio uh, uh, missions you know um, if I can rely on somebody producing fuel that's great if I have to bring all the fuel with me That's a little more expensive uh, mission. And when it comes back to equal opportunity for developing countries or even developing uh, communities um, to play in the space economy, having the commodities exchanges is really leveling the playing field.
0: That's fascinating. Speaking of frameworks, uh, which was the beginning of our discussion. That's a brand new way to think think about things. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that that does come about a, a brand new framework in which we conduct finance in space. I hope we don't just take what we've done terrestrially and just try to f- make it fit for space. I you often think about both. this you me, me as a venture capitalist, you know, I often wonder why do funds have a 10 year life cycle? Why is the compensation 2% and 20%? 2%, 2% management fee, 20% carry. Yeah. And really, we're just squeezing in the VC what was done in private equity. There's no first there's very little first principles thinking. Like Steve mm-hmm. Jervison has a fund where he has a 15 year life cycle. Yeah. And I think he has like a three percent
2: cycle. And he's a space investor.
0: He's a space investor, yeah. He's one of the first investors in SpaceX. Right. And like it just make, it makes me it, it frustrates me because it's like, man, why, why are people not thinking using a first principles approach to think about how to set up a VC fund?
2: Well right? this comes or, back to this comes back to to a topic that I speak often about, which was included in, uh, last week at the, at the uh, crystal ball workshop. We need a certain dose of financial engineering to go alongside of aerospace, material science, mm-hmm. all the other engineering you do to, to survive or get to space. Mm-hmm. I, I respect it, but there is a proportional relationship where and i've suggested we need a center for space finance insurance and market formation i'd like it to be at stanford where we can teach first principles of finance and markets going back to the real economy when you've been saying first principles what's what i've been thinking about is is the real economy versus the financialized economy what you see for the most part on the bloomberg terminal is the financialized economy you don't necessarily especially now with with quantitative uh, tightening you don't see how much are people in need or or communities in need of the commodities and the other outputs that are coming out of the, the economy in space it gets really existential Matt Damon does not come back from Mars if he can't have enough water and shelter and food so so the real economy is the and this is where the periodic table helps us grow the real economy because you know that people are going to be benefited with health and you know <clears throat> nutrition and, and all the other things
0: yeah, it's, it's fascinating because At the end of the day economics is really it's a social science and it it deals with the allocation of resources amongst human beings Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and 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 there's a a different set of parameters in space and you're just trying to make sure you allocate the resources correctly but in the us um up until very recently we've been very dogmatic about and and i'm a u chicago alum it's very very chicago where it's basically (laughs) like with uh, Milton Freeman where it's like um, it's, it's really focused on the bottom line. In the last several years, you've seen a deviation from that, where it's like there's more to the bottom line than just financial returns. There's a long-term health of the society, uh, functionality of society, climate, etc. There's a different way to underwrite that. Therefore, you you would naturally um, allocate resources a bit differently to account for that
2: well, and your periodic table. It, it, is exactly. A framework Instead to of that looking about, at that at things as externalities, poverty, climate change as an externality, you would build that into the benefit stream unleashed, not threatened by the product or service you're offering. This, right. is, a, this is a radically different view of economic uh, from from a holistic point of view. Uh, let's count everything. I mean, I, I, I used to do, a, at Wharton, we had the green, uh, the green chalkboards, You know, and and I used to do a routine where I'd start at the top left and put the chalk and not write anything until um, this would be an economics professor would say, assume what's what I'm about to prove is true. And then they'd fill with all the equations, the end. Well, if you assume if you assume away all, which is what PhDs sometimes do at places like Stanford, Assume away all the relevant uh, considerations, you can derive an algorithm that produces uh, a positive outcome. That's not adding adding to to knowledge in a real sense. We have to take into account the real world of uh, of externalities and outcomes.
0: And speaking of that, Mike, Mike often, you know, Mike to his credit, often talks about how. Uh, Mike, you do it in one of your posts on LinkedIn, how VC is not necessarily the correct asset class for a lot of veterans that are pursuing entrepreneurs, building businesses, a lot of folks. It, it applies to a very small degree. Uh, and I'm, I'm making a leap here just to tie us all together. But, you know, it, it, it calls for first principles thinking when you are starting a business about how you do you want to raise money for investors? Should you raise money from customers? Should you go out and get debt, et cetera? um well i I like to
2: call that it's it's a rubik's cube of finance and you (laughs) have to twist it to the type of story you are able to tell at the Mm -hmm. maturity of your company and this comes back to some readiness level research i've done with with uh, a, a colleague at afrl air force research lab sean ross um he's actually led much of it Uh, and and a former student, Ethan Um, and And so, to your point, Mike, venture capital will only get you through a certain stage of the development of a company. But if you don't have a business readiness level or a business model, you don't have a commoditization readiness level, so people can use it alongside of other stuff that they... It's you're not going to advance out of those valleys of death of which we found many when we even went back as far as uh, Leonardo da Vinci and and his uh, entrepreneurial journey, so um, VC and the demand of oh, VCs are going to demand a 25% uh, return um, I uh, there's a lot of expletives that just went across my mental <laughs> That never happens the average uh, returns for VC over 10 years from the National Venture Capital Association is 5% at best, yeah. okay? So let's, let's talk honest numbers here, okay? Uh, and, and the different tiers of venture capital uh, who see the best deals versus the worst deals. So um, let's play with the same uh, math across reality here.
1: One of the reasons I share that so frequently is my argument is that I don't think underrepresented, marginalized, whatever you want to call them groups can afford that valley of death the way some other groups can. So, you know, when people are investing what little friends and family money that they have into a Mm -hmm. business, you know, those years of sacrifice and education and stuff, right? This idea that one of us making it to the mountaintop and, a million of us are in the graveyard, that's not <laughs> success to me. And so I think we need to rethink that. And all I try to do is challenge that thinking.
2: Well, and, and that's where I think this readiness level research is incredibly powerful for uh, marginalized communities and entrepreneurs. Why do I want to see a marginalized or fr- previously marginalized group uh, bump into you know a brick wall? Why? Why do I want them to fail? I don't. So if I can be anticipatory, which is what this research said, it shows us we could be, that if you assume that there are nine levels in five or six relevant readiness levels, um, if you're ever more than two degrees out of sync in the parallel readiness levels, you fail. So you can't wait to get your technology perfect at a level of nine to come up with a way to market it. That's, you're going to die. It's going to fail. Let's cultivate the reality, not the mirage of entrepreneurship, in this more anticipatory, coming back to my futurist than your, your futurist leaning. Let's not watch people fail. Let's let's support them to say you go- have you thought of the questions that are over not just the next readiness level, but all the next readiness levels. <clears throat> have you raised the money to do it? All right, Do you have marketing? Does anyone want to buy your product when you market it to them that way, and price it that way? So, so I think we um, we don't have to be. I would call passive aggressive investors watching people fail. Mm-hmm. We can be very much anticipatory and help them succeed and, do and have, get them over it.
1: I do have so, one question that I kind of think sums up, you know, even going back to what I was initially talking about with, you know, you're talking about space and a whole banking industry in space, which is a new market altogether. Right. Creating a new market that doesn't exist how do we ensure yeah, going back to what Sherman said, you know, that, you know, even just to be an accredited investor and invest in these future things, you have to have what, uh, $250,000 a year, million dollars in liquid assets. That's literally like 1% of black America, you know? So at the same black time, are less than 1%, right? Um, so as we're creating these new markets, whose responsibility is it to ensure I don't want to use just the term equity, you know, but this new wealth that is going to get created. How do we ensure that we get to participate if we can't Look, invest?
2: Look, uh, you know, if if we're so damn smart as financial <laughs> engineers and we can't figure the answer to that, we're not that smart. I think we are smart enough. I think they're without I'm not a fan of SPACs. I never was. I handled Dealing with junk bonds and bankruptcies in my legal career, I, I know it by a different name. Um, let's find uh, relatively safe um, mutual funds that are geared to take even founders' equity in space companies and and participate it out. Um, there, it, once there are, uh, coming back to the commodities exchange. Once I have supply and demand curves for how much launch it'll take between low Earth orbit and uh, lunar, moon, uh, lunar orbit, I, I can make some educated guesses about whether a company providing that launch service or that tr- shuttle service is, is a good bet, you know, based on the revenue that they're going to generate by charging for that. The FedEx, if you will, revenue that they'll generate from that. Um, we also have to teach uh, Black Americans and, and almost everybody else. I don't know about your families, but you know, at my family, if you asked about, uh, "Hey, Dad, where's my allowance?" and my dad was an accountant, and you did that at the wrong time at the at the dinner table. It was a very early night. <clears throat> and I, and and I saw my room much quicker uh so most people grow up to adulthood without knowing anything about um about money and how to how to invest in fact so I teach ethics of finance and financial engineering this quarter and three student athletes at stanford said you know we'd love to take your class but it's during practice for The women's basketball basketball and the football team i'm like that sucks um what can i do about it i went to sleep i woke up the next day i said well why don't we just do you know kind of a, a makeup session on another time and as a result something i've wanted to do for a long time is to do personal financial management for student athletes who make a lot of money if they go pro and then everybody helps them spend it and they never save it and invest. it. So we're doing a little bit on that. That's not a space issue. That's a, a culture of financial illiteracy issue. And, and the banks have profited, the credit card companies have profited massively from that illiteracy. We can, we can flip that, uh, we can flip that.
0: And and we got to conclude here shortly, but where can we, or before we do, one more question. How do you propose we bring your framework into fruition? So I'll give an example. When I was in business school, we learned that the capital asset pricing model was effectively broken. And when I was in business school is when Eugene Farmer won the Nobel Prize. I believe I was in school at the time. Um, And he won it based off the three-factor model. Right, if I'm a French, right? French, I think, was a word professor, I believe, right? Um, and, then, and then there's a fourth factor, was momentum mm-hmm. that came out. I can't remember who developed that. Now, now I know there are people who have created like six or eight different factors, right, for capital. And capital as a pricing model for those listening is how you price equity, right? Mm-hmm. It's As a banker, I never, ever did that. We we always use the standard capital as a pricing model, despite us knowing that there's been research to show that that was... Um, that it wasn't as accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe the the thought thought process was you don't need it to be as accurate, right? The price of something is basically what people are willing to pay for it. It is what it is. Or
2: if the market is equally um, ignorant, it'll wash out.
0: It'll wash out, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's it. So basically you have these, these, these better, more improved forms of pricing things, but they never came into... They haven't come into fruition. They haven't achieved wide adoption. With your or, framework, um, with respect to uh, post-assisted finance, basic commodities exchanges, etc., Mike, a lot of the stuff that you talk about, because uh, Mike, you whether you know it or not, you've effectively created frameworks. How do we bring those in fruition? How do we get common adoption? Because like Mike said, we're not trying to move one or two people forward. We're trying to move uh, large uh, groups of society for it. I saw a lecture you did in 2015, Bruce, and you had sat next down to Jesse Jackson, and, and you had talked to him about um, that he talked to you about, basically, like, he's trying to move, like, whole communities forward, yeah. right? And, yeah. and, and in the U.S., we've had a big problem with that mobility. Uh, Thomas Piketty wrote a famous book on inequality, sure. now 10 years ago.
2: Capital, and then Capital. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, on inequality. And it's like we, we... we, we we've actually done actually pretty well since 2012 i mean i, I think uh that kind of 2015 to 2020 time frame was some of the best time for middle class but now it's mainly due to the low cost capital level, mm-hmm. right um mm-hmm. but how do we how do we take these frameworks get the wider adoption with assuming that our these frameworks are are what's best right i mean we have to make we have to make that assumption uh but how, how do we get those
2: what, what so one propose? of the and and I'll, I'll be curious to hear how mike answers um each of the periodic table and the space commodities exchange would invoke a a different kind of math sure and the math that it invokes is how much of a particular commodity or quality of life element as a commodity mm. How does this relate to the others in the cluster to which it either helps or deteriorates? That's a much different functional question than who is the greater, greater fool to try to gobble up and corner the market on that commodity. It's a, it's a how much of it do you want relative to other stuff you're going to want in a society? In space, it's existential, Matt Damon dies. In the uh, slums, people die, um, et cetera. So I see it as, as much more iterative and, and scenario building. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, uh, a math professor from Stanford was at, Her- at Purdue and heard my lecture on Wednesday night and came up to me afterward, he said, why don't I know about you? <laughs> like I don't know, <laughs> but uh because we share a common link through through the professor who who arranges uh, uh, for my appointment um, but we we met for lunch uh, uh, on Tuesday at the faculty club, and he has some math students who want to work on on the space commodities exchange so mm-hmm. um it's a different math than the macro uh hedge fund math that we've seen proliferate across wall street it's much more um foundational and and uh, tethered to the real economy as i said what do you think mike i mean i'm interested yeah
1: the first thing is you know you have to write a book right Because the book is the
2: ultimate. Why do I have to write a book? Everybody, just because I open my mouth, I have to write (laughs) a damn book. I I mean, I've been writing all kinds of stuff. Why do I have to write a book? I got my master's
1: in American studies with the emphasis in public history. right? So I never had any, I never wanted to be at uh, work in academia, but I knew I wanted to learn this stuff and teach it. So that's why I do things like podcast and writing. But when you start to understand how societies move forward, right? Getting it down on paper, for public consumption it's just like a must it is what it is right it's ultimate immortality but beyond that you have to teach it in institutions right and like you said it is iterative right so you're teaching it through story you're teaching it through testing you're just really evangelizing it until you get to a point to where it sticks and then it yeah. starts to spread uh itself that at, I'm making it sound easier than it really is but when you start thinking about frameworks that are surviving the test of time there's kind of a playbook that's already been written, you know, Mm -hmm. you got to have the institutions, right? It's just a fact it has to, you got to just keep pounding. And there's no guarantee that it's going to be something that's going to stick within the next five to 10 years, but eventually Mm -hmm. stuff starts catching on. And then we start to have these frameworks and people don't even remember where it originally came from. You know, you think about story, right? Or poems early to bed, early to rise, leaves a man happy, healthy, and wise. Right. And, That's something that survived for God knows how long. But in itself, it's a framework and it's something easy to memorize. And you start to think about why did they come up with this? There's more to the, you know, to the story there. And there's something there. So, you know, you've got to make it memorable. And one of the ways to make it memorable is through story. And one of the ways to start with story is through writing and books, etc.
2: So I'll tell you one of my favorite stories as we close out the podcast. And I may have mentioned this, uh, Sherman, in the talk. 1833 or so, there's a family of a dozen uh, folk in, I believe, Kentucky, who want to escape and by the Underground Railroad escape to uh, Ontario, Canada. And the 11th of a dozen kids, Elijah, um, they sent him for reasons I haven't figured out to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland to learn to be a mechanical engineer. So this is the time of the steam trains, 1850s. Um, And he comes back and the only job Elijah can get is to throw the firewood into the boiler to make the steam and to lubricate the steam engine. And Elijah figures out that the way they've been lubricating steam engines is both ineffective, wasteful, and, and also dangerous. And he patents, again, patents um, a, a system. And from then on, everyone who drives a steam train or, or is on a railroad that depends on a steam train to deliver the goods, um, uses Elijah's system. Elijah's name is Elijah McCoy. His is the real McCoy system. And that's why we have the expression, the real, real McCoy. McCoy.
0: Wow. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, that's, that's amazing. Story is important. Um, it really is to, yeah, yeah. Stories have survived well, so the
1: test of time. They really is that, has passed uh, down uh, in the you campfire. You are
2: so right. We, we are natural. Down. Our, our wiring as, as humans feeds on on memory feeds on story. Yes. It does yeah
0: So what Bruce, we're wrapping up now. Um, I'd love for you to talk about where we can read your writings, where can we check out the periodic table and, and the thought process behind it and how to how to bring it into consideration when we make investment decisions. I know for our fund at AI and Ventures, um, you know, we would love to incorporate and measure our investments against your periodic table to see the impact that we're making. Um I think a lot of entrepreneurship and investors who are listening should care about that. Where can we read your stuff, or, or when is it coming out? And then, Mike, so, we would love to know where we can where we can purchase your book, also.
2: So, Mike, you're the host, so you get to put your Amazon link in in the chat. Um, um, I'm going to go off and and spend the next two years writing the book that Mike wants to buy on Amazon from me, not. Um, <laughs> And um, you can actually go to the uh, Global Project Center Digital Cities Conference website, and you'll see um, the, uh, uh, the, the video of my talk presenting the periodic table uh, in detail. The, there is a paper that's about 55 pages long. Uh, it's in peer review uh, describing the GEM, the general economic model uh, for alleviating slums. And um, the periodic table is explained fully in that. Uh, That's not come out yet. We're waiting for for that. Um, The space commodities exchange is in um, about three different papers. It's also cited in the state of the industrial base reports that come out of the the military. as an element of financial engineering that are needed alongside of space bonds, which I've also said we need to, to address the long-term finance needs. Um, and if anyone wants to get in touch, they're they're welcome to contact me and I'll... We'll
1: be sure to include it in the, in
0: we'll the show
2: share. You yeah. know what, you, you guys can share my email. You have my my yeah. Logic email. Absolutely. Go for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I got, gents, this was absolutely great, fascinating. Like I said, I love frameworks. Um, it's something that you know both Mike and I have used since we were 17 years old, and and and, and you know in our in our profession, Bruce, you were forced to use it, you know, uh, as as a, as a child. And it's amazing how um, we can overcome any obstacles, uh, and, and and those become superpowers, right? Effectively, so well, I think um, we
2: can, but we can also help each other. I think uh, we can also be honest and humble. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in inter- the intersectional, and say, "I don't have the answer could you mm-hmm. could you help me and And people mm-hmm. you know especially for men, especially for men from the military who are not used to asking for help, mm-hmm. um, these are different journeys that we're talking about, and they're not intuitive, and so try not to make as many mistakes and do ask for help when you yeah. when you think you need it you know? yeah, yeah.
0: Well, gents, this is great. Thank you so much. Um,
2: Thank you, uh, thanks to both of you for for inviting me. I hope hope the listeners uh, got something out of it and I'm sure they'll they'll weigh in and, and tell you what they think.
0: All right, gents, thank you so much.
2: Take care.